Morning, everybody. Morning, everybody. Good to see you guys here. Um, you guys ever do something uh, just extraordinary because you're desperate? I did something like that this week, uh, <laughs> um, and I'm embarrassed about it, but unfortunately, I couldn't think of a better way to open this sermon, so I'm just going to have to embarrass myself. I was at, um, I was hungry. I'm on this keto diet that Romero has me on where I'm not eating in the mornings, and so when one o'clock rolls around, I'm hangry, especially on the weekends, because, or after the weekend, because during the weekend, I eat all day, and then Monday hits, and by one o'clock, I'm ravenous. And so my wife and I are in Mission Valley, and she goes, babe, you're hungry. I said, yeah. She could tell I was on edge. And um, she said, there's In-N-Out right here. So we go, and we're waiting to turn left into In-N-Out. You guys know where that's at? Mission Valley. And I've got my blinker on, and the driveway's full, of course, because it's like the, the lunch hour, and there's like two or three cars waiting to turn right. And I'm like, well, somebody will let us in. <laughs> so <laughs> one car two cars, and the third car is about to go, and I'm finally going to have my chance to kind of pull in and, and pull behind them, but up at the stoplight, a whole string of cars comes around the corner, and they pull in behind that car that's turning in. I'm like, dude, really? And I look behind me. Now there's 10 cars with their blinkers on. None of us can get into the driveway, and I'm getting irritated. Has anybody ever been in a situation like that? Yes. So I did the very Christian thing. When I finally got a chance to pull in, um, which nobody was letting me in still. Seriously, 10 minutes later, I finally pull up next to one of the cars, and I like honked my horn and looked over. <laughs> and it was this sweet little old lady, and she looked terrified at this big bearded guy honking his horn at her, and I felt like the worst human being that's ever lived, right? Is it, uh, I know some of you guys are shaking your head in disapproval. <laughs> like, pastor? Like, this sermon's for you today. Um, and for others of you, you're like, yeah, I've been there before. This sermon's for you today, too. Okay, but here's the deal. There are times when all of us, we get so hungry, we get that in and out desperation, right? We're thirsty. Nothing's going to stand between me and that water, that thing that I need to drink. We get desperate, and we're willing to do extraordinary things to overcome any obstacle to get the thing that we need. Anybody been there before? You guys know what I'm talking about. Whatever's at your disposal, you'll employ people, expend your strength, spend your energy and your effort to get things out of the way to get the thing your heart longs for the most. We've all been there, right? Like, spend, anybody spend all night staying awake to study for a test? Yeah. Anybody ever spend way more money than you plan to uh, in order to impress that special someone? Yeah, you, you go to extraordinary lengths to make sure that you get the thing you want. And in this story today we're going to walk through is no different. There's these obstacles between this man and Jesus, his healer, his savior, and we're going to journey along with him and see how he gets there. And along the way, we're going to realize that he's not the only one that has obstacles between him and Jesus, but everyone in this story has obstacles between them and Jesus. And for some, it's, it's their situation. For others, it's their sin. For others, it's their self-righteousness. But everybody in this story has big, glaring obstacles in between them and Jesus. And as we start this journey, I want you to ask yourself today, candidly and honestly, what obstacles have come between me and Jesus? 
I want you to ask yourself that. If Jesus is the healer, if he's savior, if he's the, if the life that you long for is to be found with Jesus, how can we break through? How can we overcome those obstacles today? And I pray that there's kind of a desperation that starts to kick into our hearts, that, that in and out desperation where we say, no matter what, I pray that I could get somebody, I need help, get me to Jesus today. So that's the title of the sermon, Give Me to Jesus. You guys ready? All right. So it's Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 we're going to be walking through. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. If not, we've got some Bibles up here, and we'll have the scriptures up on the screen. Let's talk first about the situation. Chapter 2, verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. So let me set the stage here. Back in chapter 1, Jesus had been to Capernaum. He'd called his disciples. This is the hometown. Capernaum means uh, the town of Nahum, like the prophet, right? And this is where Simon and Andrew and these other disciples were, and this is where they ran their business. And so Jesus comes there, and the whole town hears about it, and they flock to him. They bring all of their sick. They bring all their diseased and demon-possessed, and Jesus heals them. And he goes to sleep, but the next morning he rose up early, and he snuck out and the line's forming, and everybody's showing up, and the disciples are like, I don't know where he went. Where did Jesus go? So they're walking all over the countryside, and they finally find him, and they say, Jesus, the whole town's waiting for you. you know, which, by the way, if you're planting a church or starting a ministry, and the whole town showed up, why would you leave? You know what I mean? Could you imagine if the whole town showed up here because God was doing something like that? That'd be crazy. The last thing we do is be like, hey, guys, we're canceling church this Sunday. We've got to, you know. So Jesus goes, and he takes off. He goes to another town, and he says, God wants me to preach this good news, this gospel, all over the place. Along the way, he heals this leper. And lepers are, of course, the outcasts of society. And, and so he heals him, and he says, you've got to go show yourself to the priest so you can be welcomed back into society. But don't tell anybody I did this. What's the leper do? He immediately, it says, went out and told everybody that Jesus had healed him. And now Jesus can't even go into a town because the the crowd is like mobbing him. They want to hear from him. They want to see miracles. They want to catch whatever it is he's doing. And so Jesus, exhausted, tired, finally in this chapter goes back to Capernaum. It says it's home, which is interesting because Nazareth is his home. But he's chosen this as like his adopted home because it's where Peter lives. And he goes probably to Peter's house, and he goes to sleep. And the next morning, as he wakes up, he sees heads peeking through the window, right? And the crowd's starting to, get, to gather. And, and Jesus takes pity on him, and he begins to teach him. So that's the setting here in Mark chapter 2, verse 3. Some men came, bringing him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. I know if you're following the story, you're like, wait a second. I thought he healed everybody already. Good question. Where'd this guy come from? I'm just imagining that early in the morning that day, there was a knock at the door. And he opened the door, and he stood there, and there was three of his friends, and they said, hey, man, the healer's back. In Capernaum? Yeah, I'll get my coat. And before the sun even came up, they, they went walking over to their friend's house. Bobby, Bobby, maybe 19 years old, 
He's never stepped a day in his life, can't move his legs. He was born this cute little baby. His parents loved him, but he was a little unlike his brothers and sisters because when he woke up, <laughs> he never was able to sit up. He was never able to crawl when the other babies were crawling. He was never, never able to walk or take his first steps. So his dad made him this cool little cot, carved his name on it, and he dragged him everywhere through the city, and Bobby felt like the coolest kid in the world at first because he had his own special vehicle. Saw the whole world in reverse as his dad dragged him around the city. But now he's starting to get older, and he's starting to realize that all the other kids are playing, and he can't. And that first time they went to Jerusalem, it was amazing. The big city, the sounds, the lights, all the things going on, the chaos, and it was amazing. It was overwhelming, and he couldn't believe he got to be there. But then his family all got to go into the temple to offer the sacrifice, and he had to stay outside because his legs didn't work. And if you're not whole, if you're, if you're blind, if you're lame, you, you can't go in the temple. That's only for people who are whole. And he realizes his life goes on that he's more and more on the outside. And his friends start to get girlfriends. The girls start to get boyfriends. And life moves on and they start getting apprenticeships and jobs. And he's left in the dust. Wondering, what, what good am I? What do I have to offer society? But apparently he didn't get so bitter that he didn't have any friends left. You know how that can happen to some people. Bobby still had at least four friends. At least four friends who showed up early that morning on their own dime, on their own time. They left everything behind. They sacrificed, and they said, Bobby, the healer's back. And they threw him on the cot, and here they go. They're walking all the way from wherever they were, over the hills, through the woods, around the Sea of Galilee, and the morning mist starts to fade as the sun burns it off and rises, and now it's getting hot, just like it's been in San Diego the last few days. You guys know that feeling, right? And now they're sweating. And they're carrying him, and their arms are tired, and they got to pause, and they got to switch sides. But it's okay. We're getting to the healer. We're getting over to Capernaum. And they come over the hill, and they see the town, and the town is completely still. It's like a ghost town. Where is everybody? But you kind of hear this, like, dull roar, kind of like the sound of the sea, which is confusing because the sea's that way. But it's like there's a sound of a sea, and as they get closer, they realize that's where they're at. That's the people. They come around the corner, and the lawn outside the house is covered with a multitude of people. And as you get, it's like Woodstock, right? It's like the open-air theater down in Chula when John Mayer or somebody's playing there, and everybody's just strewn on the grass listening, and they, they got their food and everything. But as you get closer and closer to the house, the group gets tighter and tighter to where it says people are peering through the doors and the windows, and they, they can't get in. So they say, well, let's try. So they start carrying them. We've come all this way. And they start, excuse me, pardon me, I'm coming through. Excuse me. But as they get closer and closer, people start getting more rude. Get in line, bud. We've been here since before the sun rose. And they can't make it through. That's where we find ourselves in the story. How did they get to Jesus when there was obstacles in their way? What did this guy have to get past the obstacles? The obstacles of his legs being immobile. The obstacles of the distance between him and Jesus. The obstacles of the crowd. How did he get past that? The first thing, I th we see four things in the text that I'm going to highlight. There's probably more. First thing we see is pretty obvious. Community. Community, right? Verse 3, some men came bringing him a paralyzed man. If you're going to get past your obstacles today and get to Jesus, the first thing you need is community. 
And I know that's counterintuitive for a lot of us because we grow up in a probably the most individualized, individualistic culture that has ever existed, right? We have this belief in our culture that somehow we got here on our own. We're self-made men. We picked ourselves up by our bootstraps and put myself through college, and, and I'm here kind of independently. I've made it. I'm self-reliant. But we're not. We all came into this world kicking and screaming, didn't we? We all came into this world, and somebody had to feed us, and somebody had to change our diapers, and somebody raised us, and somebody educated us, and somebody sacrificed for us. Even the most self-reliant among us, we, wouldn't, we know that we have to admit that we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for other people in our life. And the Bible shows that truth from the beginning. I mean, God in his very nature is triune, three in one, Right? And God creates us to be like him. And and as he's creating, he says, let there be, and there was. And God says every day, seven days in creation, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then he makes man. And then he says, it's not good. What's not good? It's not good that man is alone. I'm going to provide somebody for him. We were created for community. We were created for community. I'm getting one amen. (laughs) Jesus started his ministry by gathering a community around him. And then when he sends them out on their ministry, he sends them out in community, in twos and threes, never alone. Community is a motif of the whole story of God, of all of Scripture. And now this man with, with paralyzed legs, he could never have made it to Jesus without these four men. Can you imagine what would have happened if he would have never admitted he had a problem? If he would have covered up his problems so nobody could see it? Would anybody have ever brought him to Jesus if he just act like he had it all together? Where would he have been? I think we all need to take note of that today because like this man's paralysis, many of us experience a paralysis of pride. And it leads to an atrophy of our soul. We're withering away in silence. Henry David Thoreau says it this way, most men live lives of quiet desperation. Some of us need to get past ourselves today and admit that we need help. You need to reach out today. If you're in a tough spot today, maybe this sermon's for you. You need to reach out to somebody and say, help me. I need you to get me to Jesus. And if you're desperate, that's what you'll do. And I'm getting desperate because it's hot in here. Can somebody get the AC? Awesome. Thanks. Woo! Second thing you see. I'm going to go quicker. Second thing you see is strength. It says this. He was carried by four of them, not one, not two, not three, not four. Why? Because in order to get somebody from here to there, uh, the guy's heavy, dead weight. we got to carry him, right? So it took strength. It cost them something. They spent their time and their energy and effort to get him to Jesus. It takes physical strength to get past obstacles. But it also takes uh, emotional strength to keep going when you're spent and you're tired. It takes strength of character to just go out of your way in the first place. And sacrifice yourself in order to help bring somebody to Jesus. And it takes mental strength to expend yourself in those points and solve problems when the obstacles seem insurmountable. And that brings us to the third point. That's that mental strength, the ingenuity. When they go there, they realize there's no way through. How are we going to get through? I guess we'll turn around and go home, right? Is that what they did? No. no. Let's see what happened. One of them had an idea, a light bulb. Verse 4. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd. 
They made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and lowered the mat the man was lying on. I just don't take that for granted. Put yourself there for a second. If you're in that space, what would you have done? <laughs> Been angry, right? Hangry. Maybe you would have had an in and out desperation. I don't know. But they're sitting there and there's no way through. And then one of them has this idea. And this idea, it's kind of, it's like on par, it's, it's as out there as if he had said, I got an idea. We'll tunnel to Jesus. We're going to dig down, come up like gophers right in the middle. Like, you don't rip somebody's roof off. What are you talking about? Can you imagine how much you must have ticked people off? Like Mrs. Peters standing there. She just cleaned her house, and she looks up, and the dust is falling, and there's a hole in the roof. What the heck? Right? And the whole crowd is saying, we've been here since 4 a.m., waiting out line, like, you know, Best Buy on Christmas Eve or Good Friday or Good Black Friday. Black Friday. <laughs> Similar to Good Friday. Not at all. Okay. <laughs> Point is, you didn't do this kind of thing. This is risky behavior. It's radical faith. And I love this, though, because of the ingenuity. It's like those bank heist movies that I love watching with my kids, like Ocean's Eleven or Heat, right, when they use all their ingenuity to crack this impossible vault, and they're going to get in there and steal the money, except they're not stealing the money. They're trying to get somebody to Jesus, right? And so um, there are things in life that seem impossible, but that's where ingenuity kicks in, because where there's ingenuity, life finds a way. I learned that from Jurassic Park. The dinosaurs taught me life always finds a way. These guys had community. They had strength. They had ingenuity. But what gave them the strength? What pulled them together in the first place? What, what gave them this, this, this ingenuity? Verse 5, let's look at this. When Jesus saw their what? Faith. He said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. What did Jesus see? He saw, he saw their faith. How do you see faith? How did he see it? He could see their faith because of what they did. Faith is works. Notice what faith isn't. Faith isn't just well-wishing. Oh, dude, I'm sorry to hear about your legs. I'll pray for you. Faith isn't just like sentimentality or like just words where you just say something like, oh, man, that sucks. But, you know, behind every dark cloud, there's a silver lining, you know? That's not faith. Faith is action. Faith steps in and does something. Faith is shown by what they did. Biblically, faith is always linked to action. James says it this way, faith without works is dead. Faith acts. Faith overcomes obstacles. Faith will push you to extraordinary limits to get to Jesus. And they believed Jesus could heal him, so they did something extraordinary. They pulled together and pressed past every obstacle to get him there. And notice something else. Notice what it says. It says he saw their faith, not his faith. It says he saw their faith. Maybe some of you are struggling in your faith today. Maybe as you sit here, you don't even feel like you have enough faith for yourself. Maybe you feel crippled by life. Maybe it's physical ailments. Maybe it's disastrous situations going on right now for you. Maybe you're in the throw of broken patterns and you can't seem to break out of them. Depression anxiety. It's got a hold of you. Maybe you don't even feel like you have enough faith for yourself. If you don't feel like you have enough faith for yourself today, I want to challenge you, borrow someone else's. 
There are people in this place right now, today, that if you would lean out and say, I need help, they would carry you to Jesus. They'd pray with you. They'd walk with you. That's why God put us into family. Charles Spurgeon says it this way in his sermon on this passage. Today, wherever four persons come together praying for some poor soul, you may rest assured that the power of the Lord will be there present to heal. I don't think that so much of the success of sermons depends upon the preacher as much as upon the hearers. Praise God. It's good news for me. Who are all the while praying for a blessing and who are making other members of the congregation the constant subject of their supplication. Christ blessed this man because of the faith of the four who carried him and possibly because of his own faith. If you don't think you have what it takes to get to Jesus today, that's okay. That's why Paul says in Galatians 6, carry one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. How do you fulfill the law of Christ? To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. How? Carry one another's burdens. So two things really quick with that. One, if you look at yourself today and you can't find strength, look around this room. There are people here who are ready. They have enough strength for you. And I remember, like, we've, we've seen this, haven't we? Over and over in this community. People who are struggling through life circumstances, who can't carry their own burdens. Marriage is falling apart. I'm remembering right now a marriage a couple of years ago that was falling apart. And that guy was so far away from his wife and his heart, he'll admit, was so far away from God. And we spent hours late into the night hanging out and talking. And I was exhausted. I didn't feel like I had the strength to keep going. But all the brothers came around and we prayed for him and we walked with him. And we used our ingenuity and our strength and community to help bring him to Jesus. And the girls gathered around his wife. And now they experience a whole healed marriage. Why? Not, yeah. It's because of God's gracious work through his people. One of the greatest gifts you have around you in your life is right here in this room, the people of God. Also, one quick point, I'll just ask this question, whose burdens are you carrying? Because we're all going to need it from time to time. Ask yourself, are you involved enough in community that you know other people's burdens right here in this church and you're helping carry them to Jesus? So situations conspire to keep us from Jesus and we need faith, strength, ingenuity, and community to help us get through. But situations aren't the only thing. Point number two, a much shorter point, verse five. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven you. Question for you. What did this guy come to Jesus wanting? healing. So Jesus turns to him and says, son, your sins are forgiving you. Now, I know what he needed. You know what he needed. Everybody seems to know what he needed except Jesus. I think if this happened to us, we'd be like, like me or you, I think I'd, I'd be like, uh, thanks, <laughs> but I'm here for a more urgent purpose right now. I don't know if you noticed, I'm paralyzed. They let me down through the roof. Could you also maybe deal with that? Jesus says, my son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is saying, you think you know the point, but, but you don't know the point. You think you know the main problem of your life, and you don't. You think you know the main problem in your life, and you don't. Jesus is saying, look, I know you have problems. I know you're suffering. I'm going to get to that. 
I know you've been a victim of terrible things that weren't your fault. I'm going to get to that. But first, you need to realize that the main problem in a person's life is never their suffering. It's their sin. So what's he do? He uses the situation to dig down and address the deeper need. And I know that's not a popular opinion. I'm sitting there studying for this, and I'm like, am I really going to stand in a public place in San Diego and say this on Sunday? But I have to because I'm trying to show you what the text says. And if you find that offensive, would you at least please consider this? Ironically, when you say to somebody, which is what Jesus is saying to him and saying to us today through the scripture, that the main problem in your life is not what's happened to you. The main problem in your life is not what people have done to you. It's not what's occurred. Your main problem in your life is the wrong way you've responded to what's happened. Ironically, that's empowering. You can't do much about what's happened to you, but you always choose your response. You always choose what you do about it. And I'm just going to say this. Some of us need to rise above victim mentalities today. Not because we've never been victimized. We have. But because we choose our response, because we refuse to let what other people have done to us control us or identify us. This truth is empowering if you take hold of it. So what's Jesus asking this man to do? Jesus is driving him deeper. Jesus is saying, by simply asking for your body to be healed, you're actually not going deep enough. He's saying, you've underestimated the depths of your human desires. What's he mean? Jesus is saying something like this. Everyone in the world, everyone wants to be healthy and be able to walk, right? Everyone. Anyone who's paralyzed is going to want to walk. Of course, it's only natural. It's only right. We weren't created to be paralyzed. We were created to be able to walk, and sin has destroyed this world. So, of course, this man must have been resting all his hope in that. He's got to be thinking, man, if I could only walk then, my life would be right. I'd never be unhappy. I'd never be discontented. I would never complain another day in my life if I could just walk. And Jesus is saying, listen, son, you're mistaken. I know it sounds harsh, but listen, he's saying, if all I do is heal your body, what's your response going to be? At first, it's going to be joy. It's going to be euphoria. It's going to be ecstasy. You'll say, man, I'll never be unhappy again, but just wait a couple months. Wait four months. Wait till the next thing hits you in life. And you know this because the roots of our discontent go so deep. We see it all the time in the culture around us. I was in Smart and Final this morning buying fruit and water for the gathering. And as I stood there in the grocery aisle, I saw the magazines. And you see this, this phenomenon in our culture called celebrity. And these people who were seemingly normal, average people working hard to try to get ahead, working hard to have success, and then all of a sudden they get it, and it seems like their life so often just goes off the rails. What is that? There's this uh, woman named Cynthia Heimel who wrote about this in a column, and she said this. I have the quote on, I think I have the quote. I pity celebrities. Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. You see, they wanted fame, they worked, they pushed, and the morning after each one of them became famous, however, they wanted to take an overdose because the giant thing they were striving for, that thing was going to make everything okay, was going to make their lives bearable, was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, has happened and they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. 
She's saying she's sorry for them because they finally got what they desired, the thing where they were like, if I only had this, then my life would make sense. Then I'd be happy, but it wasn't. And then she says this at the end of the article. I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish. That's true. That's right out of Romans 1. But I love what Jesus is saying to this man, this paralyzed man. He's saying, I'm not going to play that rotten joke on you. I'm not going to just give you your deepest wish. Not, not until it's no longer your deepest wish. Question for you, what is your, if this, then I'd be happy. Then my life would have meaning, value, significance. What is your functional savior? In uh, one more quote, Tim Keller says it this way in um, Counterfeit Gods. The Bible says our deepest problem is every one of us is building our identity on something besides Jesus. We're looking at something, whether it's to walk or make it or a relationship or a condition or a situation. We're looking at something and saying, if I had that, then everything will be okay. But when you do that, when you look to these things and say, if I had that, then I'd be significant, then I'd be safe, then I'd be secure, you're looking at those things to save you. Here's the problem. When you're looking at those things to give you life, to save you, like Tim Keller saying, Think of how it affects you. Because if you don't get them, while you're waiting, while you're pushing, you're getting angry, you're always unhappy, you're always empty. But if you do get them, then you're even more empty. You're even more angry. You're even more unhappy. And Jesus says, I'm the only Savior who, if you get me, I will fulfill you. And if you fail me, I'll forgive you. That's why we often go to Jesus I think exactly like this man with our felt needs. We have our needs, we have our hopes, we have our things that we bring to Jesus. And, and when we first go to Jesus, it's like we're thinking, oh, I have all these problems in life. Jesus, help me with these things. Help me with this stuff. And it doesn't occur to us that our deepest problem is that we're looking for something besides Jesus as our Savior. In fact, often when we first go to Jesus, we're asking him to give us our Saviors. God, give me this thing. I need it. I want. I need. Like, that's what about Bob reference. I need, I need, I want. So almost all of us, when we first go to him, we're saying, this is my problem. And he says, no, you have a lot deeper of a problem than that. You've got to dig deeper. You just want to turn over a new leaf. You just want to change a few things. You just want to help to reach that goal. But you have to change the very thing that your heart most wants because that's what's screwing you up. There's a great story about this, um, and Kenny mentioned last week that when I, we grew up, we were part of a strict tradition. We didn't have TV, but we could watch VHS, which was awesome. So we would sit in front of the screen and watch videos for hours, and they had made this really, really, actually, it was pretty, it was okay, but the graphics were pretty whack, uh, C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia uh, video thing. Has anybody ever see the old ones? Not the movies, the cool ones, but I mean the old ones from the last... 90s, so good. And there's this one called Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Uh, if you guys are familiar with that story, there's this kid named Eustace. And he's a, he's a brat, man. Everybody hates him. He, he, he hates everybody. He's such a jerk. And um, he's on this long voyage on a ship called the Dawn Treader. And they land on this island. And he sneaks off away from everybody. And he goes into this cave. And in the cave, he finds this treasure. There's gold. And, and diamonds, and rubies, and all this stuff. And he's like, yes, hit the jackpot. I finally got all I want, and now I'm going to pay them all back. 
Every person who was mean to me, I'm going to be mean to them. If they said something mean to me, I'm going to squash them. I have all the power. He's like power tripping so hard that he actually falls asleep. Falls asleep and he wakes up and he's a dragon. Because he doesn't realize that he fell asleep in a dragon's lair with the dragon's like the dragon's treasure sitting there, and he went to sleep with all these dragonish, selfish, greedy thoughts, and he woke up, and he's, he's actually a dragon. And so um, at first that would seem cool, but then he realizes he can't get out. Can't, can't get out of the dragon lair. Um, he's stuck. He can't get back to the ship. He's going to be there alone. He's going to be there ugly for the rest of his horrible life. And he's practically lost all hope. And then one day, Aslan the lion comes in. And Aslan brings him over to a pool and shows him the reflection. And he says, undress and jump in. And he says, undress? Oh, I can take the skin off. So he starts clawing away at the scales and the dragon skin. And he realizes, oh my goodness, I can take this off. But to his horror, once he gets the first layer off, underneath is a brand new cloak of dragon skin. So he does it a second time, and he does it a third time, and he's still a dragon, and he's getting more and more hopeless and despairing, and Aslan says, let me give it a try. Let me do this for you. And Aslan digs in, and this is, this is what he says. Here, Eustace's words, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So the very first tear he made went so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. And he continues, well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off. And just as I thought I'd done myself, I'd done it myself before the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying in the grass, only ever so thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than all the others had been. And he threw me into the pool and it smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And I saw I'd become a boy again. Hmm. It's hard for me to read that passage without tearing up because it reminds me of what Christ has done for me. Like this paralyzed man, like Eustace, we think if we could just get a little bit of help, we can save ourselves. But Jesus is saying, no, i got to take you deeper. You have to let me take my claws and go all the way to your heart. Let me change the main things in your heart that your heart really wants. That's what's screwing you up. Stop trying to turn over a new leaf. Stop trying to use me to get to a new goal or trying to use the giver just for his gifts. Stop trying to use me to get your other saviors and make me your real savior. But the process by which he does that and goes deep really does deal with the source of discontent in our hearts. That process is terrifying because this Jesus is like a lion who has claws. So the confusion and shock of this paralyzed man because Jesus doesn't give him what he's after. It's a challenge to us. But Jesus used the situation to address his deeper need, his sin. I want you to think about that, just in closing on this point. They, Jesus knew they were coming. He could have made it really easy. He could have stood up and just walked outside and done it. But he's developing something in them. He's allowing them to go through a certain process because he's doing something greater than just fixing their quick felt need. We tracking? And that's not the only thing he's dealing with. Lastly, self-righteousness, verse 6. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You see that? And, you know, they're right. What Jesus says, if he's not God, is blasphemous. Absolutely. 
It's way out of bounds. The Pharisees are totally right. You know what Jesus is claiming? Look, what does he claim? I want to ask you this. When he looks at the man and says, I forgive all your sins now. He's saying all your sins have been against me. All your sins, everything you've ever done has been against me. Who can forgive somebody? Like imagine somebody right now walked up to you and smacked you across the face. First of all, we'd kick him out of the church probably. But <laughs> if that happened, now imagine they did that and I walked up to you and I said, uh, let's, say, let's say I walked up to them and I said, you know what, uh, Katie, I for, you smacked Ramon. I want you to know I forgive you. It's okay that you smacked Ramon. How would Ramon feel? <laughs> you can't forgive her sins. She sinned against me. Right? Who can forgive someone? Who's the only one who can forgive you for every sin you've ever done? It's your creator. Your creator. He's the only person who made you and says, I made you for a purpose. And when you violate that purpose, you're violating the very thing I made you for. Jesus Christ, by forgiving this man, is claiming to be God Almighty. So the Pharisees are right. Either he's a blasphemer or he's God. There's no middle ground. That's the point. Don't tell me he was just a nice teacher. He was either one who can forgive sin or he's not. If he can forgive sin, he's God. If he can't, he's a blasphemer. He's not just a good man. And they know this, and they can't stand it, and they can't see him for who he is through the foggy lens of their self-righteousness and their pride. They have religious arrogance, and that's one of the same obstacles that gets in the way of many of us. For some of us, it's our sin, and for others of us, it's our self-righteousness. And it's hard to see Jesus for who he is through the lens of our self-righteousness, because we think we have it all together. It's the prodigal son and the prodigal older brother. Christianity is the only religion that calls us to repent, not only of our unrighteousness, but also of our self-righteousness, because it can keep us just as far away from Jesus. But Jesus is not going to allow them to keep him at a distance. He knows what they're thinking, so he challenges them. I love this, to get past this. Verse 8, we'll, we'll start to wrap up here. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take your mat and walk? Oh, you feel the tension start to build, right? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he did, and the crowd went wild. (laughs) Boom, mic drop. But I want to focus on that part of it. That question he asks Which is easier to say? This is one of the greatest questions in the last 2,000 years. I was reading this commentator who said, after 20 centuries and millions of pages written on this, we still have a good question here in front of us, and that is, which is easier? Honestly, I, I, I don't think we know the answer to that yet. Which is easier? Let me ask you, which is? Because at first look, it seems to be like Jesus is saying, which is easier to say, I forgive your sins, or actually to heal somebody? But so you know I have power to forgive sins, I'm going to heal him. And he does, therefore he has power to forgive sins, and he proves that, right? And that seems to be all that that question means, but there's more to that question. Because on one hand, he does answer that question by what he does, but look carefully. Another way of reading this is this. Listen, guys, 
it's going to be infinitely, infinitely harder to do what it's going to take to forgive sin. I'm not just a miracle worker. I'm the Savior of the world. Any miracle worker can say, yeah, take up your bed and walk. But only the Savior of the world will be able to say all of your sins are forgiven. What would he have to do? Let me ask you, what would he have to do to forgive those sins? What price was he going to have to pay? In other words, he's pointing to the cross when he says, it's going to be so much harder to forgive your sins than to heal your body. Many commentators say this is the point right here where the shadow of the cross fell across the path of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus knows what they're thinking. He knows if he heals this guy, they're going to kill him. If he heals this guy, he's taking the first step down the path to his death. So he looks around and he sees half the room wanting to use him and half the room wanting to kill him. And he forgives him. Jesus knows the only way he's ever going to make the legs of that man mobile is if his own legs are nailed immobile to the cross. They go together. They have to go together. The only way he's going to make that man dance is if he dies. And you know, he looks at us the same way as we sit here in this room, and he sees us at our worst, half of us trying to silence him and shut him up, half of us really just wanting to use him for what we can get from him, and he loves us, and he forgives us because of the cross. He loves you today. This story is about a man doing crazy things to get past obstacles and get to the one he loves. And I'm not talking about the lame man. I'm talking about Jesus. Because he was reaching over obstacles to pull that man to himself. He was reaching over obstacles to pull everyone who were there, those who were blocked by their situations, those who were blocked by their sins, those who were blocked by their self-righteousness. Jesus was reaching for them, and he's reaching for you today. So my prayer for you is that you could somehow get a little bit of that in and out burger desperation today. <laughs> Let it creep up in your soul get, to get past your situation, to get over your sin, to get past your self-righteousness and get to Jesus and the bad news is, yeah, you can't do it on your own. Even if you could get to him, you'd realize there that there's countless other barriers and obstacles between you and him, obstacles inside your own heart. Because maybe you just, once you get there, you realize, man, the, I peel back the layer, you know, of the onion, and it's just darker and danker inside. Do I even have a heart that wants God for himself, or do I just keep wanting things from him? Like those celebrities like Eustace, Eustace in the story, you realize deep in your core, you're really wanting things from him instead of him for who he is. We all do. Every one of us. How can you ever get past these endless barriers inside and out? And the good news is he did it for you. He got past your sin by becoming your sin and nailing it to the cross. He got past your self-righteous pride by humbling himself to death, even death on the cross. He got past your situations for you because even death couldn't hold him down. Somebody help me, but three days later, he rose again, amen? amen. That's a promise for you. That's eternal life. Like Jesus said to this man in the story, we'll get to your situation. I promise. We'll get to that, but first let's deal with your sin. And this story ended up in verse 12 with this man taking up his bed and walking. He got up, took up his mat, 
and walked out in full view of all of them. And this amazed everyone. They praised God saying, we've never seen anything like this. He got what he most needed and he got what he wanted, what he longed for. And it's the same for us. In the end, if you get Jesus, if you get forgiveness for your sins, if you receive the freedom from your self-righteousness, if you get what you need most, then in the end, you will get what you long for. You get Jesus, you get everything along with him. When you get the giver, you get his gifts along with him. He's a good, good father. We just sang about it. He loves you. A good father gives great gifts to his kids. You will get past your situation. It's a promise. But some of you will even experience the freedom and healing now. Maybe, maybe today. Maybe in this service, in this hot building, <laughs> under these hot lights. Some of you will allow God to take time, to take obstacles. But for all of you who, who make Jesus your all in all, if you will let Jesus have his way with you, one day you'll sing, oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, grave, where's your victory? On a Lord's Day 2,000 years ago, John sat on an isle of Patmos in isolation far away from everyone else, and he saw a vision of a great multitude in heaven. And he said, these are the, those white in robes. Who are they? Where do they come from? And the voice said, these are they who have come out of great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they're before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This paralytic man who was healed walked for the rest of his life. But you know, one day his legs stopped moving again. And every blinded eye that Jesus ever healed closed their eyes in death again. And every person like Lazarus that Jesus resurrected back from the grave went back into the grave and they're asleep right now and they're all awaiting a better promise, a greater promise the promise for you today, our ultimate hope is, is not in this life. It's not in momentary healings or momentary gifts or momentary pleasures. Our greatest hope, our ultimate hope is in Jesus. And if we will, by his grace, press past some obstacles today and come to him, we will never lose him. We will spend eternity in his embrace. The embrace of the only one who knows you as you are and loves you down to your core, right where you're at. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this story. Thank you for this reminder that you call us to press past obstacles, to lean into community, to walk by faith, to use every ounce of strength and every ounce of ingenuity to, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. You, you call us to that, but at the same time, those obstacles, they're, they may seem like they're in our way, but they're not in your way. Thank you for the reminder of the gospel today that you went out of your way. You moved the obstacles. You carried us when we couldn't carry ourselves. You were strong when we were weak. And you gave your all for us. And I pray that today as we respond in communion, in prayer, in singing, that we wouldn't just go through the motions. But I pray that there might be some people here under the sound of my voice right now in this moment that are facing impossible situations. Maybe they feel crippled by life. 
There are other situations like the ones we've seen in years past where people don't even know how to get to you. They, they see insurmountable objects. It's kind of like when, when somebody's closer to you, they seem much bigger than they are, and they almost block the view of other things. And some of those obstacles in our way right now may seem way bigger than, than you. God, I pray that you would lift our eyes up to see you high and lifted up to see your sovereignty above our situations, to see the, the heart of our Father beating for us, loving us, longing for us, reaching past obstacles in our life. Give us the freedom and the courage to cry out to you right now. The courage to maybe walk up and ask somebody for prayer, the courage to lean over and ask somebody, hey, I need your help. Can you help get me to Jesus? And I pray that you give us rest in these moments, even amidst these terrible situations, to know that our greatest needs have already been taken care of at the cross, and that you love us and that you're for us, that you'll never forsake us, and that even in this moment, if we can't feel you, if we can't hear you, we can know by faith that you are present to heal, to deliver, and to do amazing things. And God, I pray that you would. I pray that this time of ministry as we respond, respond to the sermon right now, I pray that you would move in it. Because I can say a bunch of words, but at the end of the day, this is completely up to you, Lord. You move on hearts, you draw people to yourself, so have your way. Holy Spirit, speak to us, move through us. I pray you'd prompt some people maybe who, who feel by the Holy Spirit to go pray with somebody else, that they'd do that. That we'd break out of the norm, that we'd have some in and out desperation that would cause us to do some extraordinary things today. To walk by faith and not by sight, in Jesus' name. Amen.